pointing to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eddie. Well, it is uh, good to see you here today. I have to be honest, I was a little worried after talking about predestination last week that it was going to predestine some of you to not come back uh, this Sunday, Uh, but you're here, so thank you. As we begin Ephesians, and you can turn there this morning, we are talking about finding your purpose. We long for meaning, we long for significance, we long for a destiny, and the Bible shows us who we are in Christ. So let's read what we read last week to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter one, verse one through 10. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here we see who we are in Christ. We are faithful. We don't have to do something to earn this faithful status with God God has done something to give us that faithful status. We are saints in Christ Jesus. He he also says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not just the things of this earth, but things that come from heaven. They are ours in Christ Jesus. He says that we are chosen, that God wanted us for himself for all of eternity. And God set things in motion for that to happen. We are redeemed Our salvation is not just we are people that earn a salvation, but rather we are people who earn uh, a a separation from God, and yet God has redeemed us through his blood, making us his. And then we are enlightened. God is making known to us the mystery of his will, his ways. Now I'll remind you that verses three through 14 are one long sentence, and Paul concludes this thought with exhortation and praise regarding our future. Verses 11 through 14. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are going to examine closely these four verses and the words in these four verses as I believe a close look at them helps us to understand just how great God's purpose for us is and to see our inheritance that we have in Christ We'll begin with the phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, a phrase that is actually one compound word in the Greek, 
And the use of that word here could be translated as we are made to be an inheritance or we have an inheritance as we see here. Now I wanna look at both of those ideas very quickly. The first would be that we are made to be an inheritance. This is consistent with the scripture. Psalm 33 verse 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Deuteronomy 4 verse 20 says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. In Zechariah chapter 2 verse 12, the prophet says, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we understand that God sees having a people for himself as his inheritance. We are made to be God's inheritance. Whenever I was uh, just starting out in our church uh, that we served at previously, our worship leader came to me one Sunday about a song we had been singing on a regular basis called How He Loves. And in the song How He Loves, it says, we are his portion. And he said, I really don't like that we're singing that because it's like God says we're what he, you know, would say is his portion and, and what he wants for himself. And it almost makes it seem like um, we're this great treasure to God when God should be the treasure to us. And I said, God should be the treasure to us, but the scripture says we are God's treasure. In fact, those scriptures come from Isaiah. Th that verse comes from Isaiah. We are God's portion. We are made to be an inheritance for God. Now, what about the idea that we see here translated in this version that we have an inheritance? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hebrews 9, verse 15 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A central aspect of Christianity is the hope we have in this life. Because of the work of Christ, we look forward to an inheritance that comes from God. And so I do think that we have an inheritance is the best translation here. But both of these things are true. God has made us his inheritance and we have an inheritance in God. But we must focus on the phrasing here that says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Our life and our purpose and our future is in him. And if you remember from last week, we established that this was God's plan in creating the world and in the creation of you and me. That's why Paul says right there in verse 11, having been predestined, a word that makes some people uncomfortable, but it's a word you must embrace if you're familiar with the Bible. Alistair Begg says this, the story of the Bible is the story of a God who takes initiative in seeking out men and women. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who takes the initiative in seeking out men and women. This is his purpose. This is the work that he is doing. This is what everything that is happening revolves around. Him having a people for himself. Paul says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Now, when Paul uses that word purpose here, it's actually a word that is tied to the word showbread. Or you might think of bread of presence in the Old Testament. 
That was the bread that was on display in the tabernacle, which was this visual reminder that God provides for his people. So when Paul says that God works things according to the purpose, he's talking about God's desire to provide abundantly for his people. And he says, this is what God is setting in motion and revolving all of human history around. He says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I think that getting counsel is something that is very important. As a pastor, I find it to be very important to have counsel, internal to our church and external. So if there's a conflict I'm going through, if there's a challenge I'm facing, if there's a decision to be made, if I just want to ensure that my eyes are in the right place, I have godly people who speak into my life to help me set my direction. I would just say that as a dude, that's good advice. As a person, that's good advice. To have people who counsel you. In the counsel of multitude, there is safety. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sufficient in counseling himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in unison in what God is doing in this earth. John Owen says that the promise flows from the heart of the Father through the blood of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. The promise of God rescuing people for himself comes from the heart of the Father by the blood or through the blood of the Son and is powered by the Spirit of God. God is working all things around having a people for himself and that is where we find ourselves. That is where we find ourselves. And that's what you must ask about your life. If you're here with us in this room this morning, if you're watching online, are you in Christ? Is that where your purpose is? And why is God doing this? Why is God inviting into this, us into this story? Well, it says here in verse 12, so that, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, there's some debate about who Paul is referring to when he says we who were the first to hope in Christ. Perhaps he was talking about the Jews. That word Christ can actually just be translated as Messiah. And before Christ appeared in Bethlehem, the Jews had known that the Messiah was coming and had been looking forward to him. Or it could be referring to the Jews in the sense that the gospel did come to the Jews first. Romans chapter 1 says it came first to the Jews and then to the Greek. So this could be talking about the Jewish people who had this hope in a Messiah or this hope in Christ. But I would say that we and us has referred to all believers up until this point in the letter. And as Andrew Lincoln says, it's unlikely either that at this point that there's a sudden change of perspective. That leads us to think that he's talking about the first Christians. But really neither conclusion uh, changes any theology or really any reality here. Both would be to the praise of his glory. And that was the ultimate reason for the revelation of the gospel, that it would be to the praise of his glory. That was why God called the Jews to trust in him and worship him, Israel, so that they would believe and be to the praise of his glory. That was why the gospel came to the first group of believers, so that they would be to the praise of his glory. This is the purpose. Paul says at the beginning, so that... Verse 12, right? So in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that 
we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's the reason. The work that God is doing in the life of a believer is for the praise of his glory. My closing point last week was that our destiny is Jesus. Our destiny is Jesus. It is not fulfillment in our career. It is not relational satisfaction. It is not leaving an inheritance for our family. It's not reaching a level of morality or goodness that causes us to feel pretty good about ourselves. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, but I'm saying that those things are not it. And that those things, apart from Christ, are insufficient for our contentment and insulting to the character of God. I was at an event not that long ago where a pastor was asked to speak and this pastor was speaking and he began to talk about your mountain. He's talking to the audience and he's talking about climbing your mountain. How you have a mountain you wanna climb and he talked about all the things that were getting in the way of you climbing that mountain and, and essentially the great point of his sermon was that climb your mountain. This is self-glorification. And so many messages bathed in Christianity and Christian speak centered around your mountain or something similar indicates a spiritual sickness in our churches that comes from leaders feasting on a diet of worldly guidance on how to make a name for ourselves instead of a diet of scripture breathed out by a holy God whose name alone deserves praise. I fear many people are climbing the wrong mountain in the name of Jesus. Mountains of earthly prosperity, mountains of family life, mountains of experiences we want, mountains of image and status, even making it spiritual image and status. And let's just be clear about something. My mountain and your mountain look like the highest point of elevation in Florida compared to Mount Everest in light of God's glory. And if we think that we can climb God's mountain on our own ability, and we attempt to do that without humility and dependence, we will go up in smoke trying to climb it. Understand this, the very message of the gospel is that God is on top of a mountain of holiness and greatness, and there is no way that you and I could ever climb up it. But God has come down for us. God has come down and he brings us up with him and we deserve none of the credit. It is all to the praise of his glory and we must abandon Christianity that sees Jesus as a means to get us on top of our mountain and we must look to a Christianity that exalts Jesus on the mountain and says, take me with you because you are the great one and I would be, I would be in the lowest pit with you than be on my mountain without you. There is a difference in a mentality there and it says that the aim here and the work of Christ is so that we 
who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And this isn't just for those who were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is available to all. And you see, there it is again in verse 13, that phrase, in him, twice in this verse. We saw in him in verse 11, in Christ in verse 12, and we see in him again twice here. This is all found in him. In him, you also, once again, there's debate on whether this is Jews, Gentiles, or us believers, you believers. It doesn't change anything. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, truth, it's a Greek word, aletheia, it means objective truth, not my truth, your truth, their version of truth, the truth. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, euangelio, the good news of your salvation, that is how you are saved, you believed. You had faith. And laced throughout the scriptures and the promises of God, you see one condition for God's inheritance. The one condition for God's inheritance is belief in Christ. And this great work, this great work that God is doing to bring himself a people for his glory for all of eternity, the one thing that we're asked is to believe, is to have faith. Not a lot of faith, but a little bit of faith in a great God who would do this work. And when we believe, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, the idea of the Holy Spirit isn't something new to Paul. This was promised to Israel. The prophet Ezekiel, verse, chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, he says, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will move the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel says, chapter two, verse 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. This is in the Old Testament and then Jesus says it's coming. Acts chapter one, verse six through eight, he says, It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it happens in Acts chapter two. The Spirit is moving, and people hear the gospel in their own language, and many are saved, and the Spirit begins to move out from Jerusalem, and they begin to be witnesses And Jesus told us in John chapter 16, verse seven through 11, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So God seals us with this promised Holy Spirit, Paul says. A seal was a mark of ownership or um, authenticity. So you would seal, you would put your seal on uh, your cattle, your livestock, or on uh, slaves if you owned them back then. Certain cults tattooed their members as a sign that they were 
sealed. They still do that. One might think of circumcision as the seal that you are of the nation of Israel. And these are all external seals that remind you who you belong to. The spirit is this internal seal and it reminds us whose we are. We need that reminder. Are you saying we're like cattle? No, the Bible calls you a dumber animal, sheep. (laughs) And you need to be reminded We are prone to wander. We are prone to forget where the green pasture is and who we must follow. Ernest Burton says, the moment one hears and believes the gospel of salvation, he or she is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The early church saw baptism of the water as synonymous with baptism of the Spirit because you didn't schedule a testimony video like you did here. You got got baptized and the Spirit of God was in your life. Commentator Howard Hayner says, the indwelling baptizing And sealing ministries of the Spirit are bestowed on every believer at the moment of conversion. God's Spirit is active in the life of believers. God's Spirit is active in the life of believers. And I know sometimes we're kind of hesitant towards some of that spiritual talk because we're the people of the book. But if we're the people of the book, then we know the book says that the Spirit is alive in the life of believers. So what does that mean for us? I just want to glance at those texts I just read. In Ezekiel, he said, he'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. He'll give you a new heart. Listen, some of you, you're going to church and you're going to classes and you're reading books and you think doing all these things will give you the new heart. The spirit of God has to move in your heart. God has to do the work in your heart. And he says, I will cause you to work in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God transforms us to want to obey him. There's a lot of what the Bible says about my life that I have no desire to do in the human, natural, fleshly way of things. But the spirit creates a unison between our heart and God's will. He says in Joel that he'll pour out his spirit in all flesh and sons and daughters shall prophesy and old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. Everyone, even the male and female servants. And I would just say, the revelation of God is not re- reserved just for someone who stands up and say they're the man of God. It's every person. And we don't arrive at a place in our life where we coast anymore, but we're always hearing from the spirit of God. We shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jesus didn't say you should be witnesses. He said you will. It's not a clever evangelistic campaign or training method that leads God's people to be witnesses. It's the spirit that leads people to be witnesses. And Jesus says, look, he says to his disciples, I'm leaving and it's good that I leave. What? I mean, I've often thought, maybe you've thought this too, like, It would be so much easier for me to live out my faith if I were just walking with physical Jesus, right? Jesus says, no. You have the spirit of God in you. It's better that you have the helper convicting you and working in you. This spirit of God belongs to us. It's God's seal on us and it's God working on us. I want want you to think about that word seal. Other places that Greek word is used, It's used to describe the tomb of Jesus being secured by it being sealed in Matthew 27, verse 66. It's used to describe God throwing Satan into a pit and sealing it so he can never escape again in Revelation chapter 20. 
It's where the seal of God is put on the forehead of God's servants to protect them from the wrath to come in Revelation chapter seven. God says, you're mine. You're secure. I have six children in my house, and so whenever they bring something to the house, they want to make sure other people uh, know it's theirs. They will often write their name on it, right? Little kids especially. And sometimes you're gonna be like, no, you can't write your name on the TV or the remote. That doesn't belong to you. But it's theirs, and they wanna make sure that others know that it's theirs. God has written his name on you, son and daughter of God, with his Holy Spirit. It is yours when you believe. This is not to be confused with the exhortation to believers to be repeatedly filled by the Spirit from the moment of our conversion to the end of our lives here on earth. We do choose and continue to submit ourselves to God, but if we believe we have the Spirit, Romans 8, verse 9 through 11 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his Glory. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We have this great inheritance in Christ Jesus, the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And the Spirit is the guarantee until we acquire possession of that. They would think in this day of a bargain payment, which was a part payment that was made as a guarantee of what would be paid. The Holy Spirit is our part payment. It is our foretaste of what is coming in the riches of Christ. I remember when my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, her days were ending um, and she was leaving a little bit of money to each of our family members and as that day come, came before she passed, uh, she actually gave us a little bit of that. She wanted us to know that. And I remember we were in a season where, um, you know, we were just struggling to make it, uh, to get by, uh, having young kids, me working, Christy was staying at home. And I remember, like, when that money came, knowing, like, hey, it's gonna be all right because this is gonna help us. Not that I was excited she was gonna pass away, but, like, this is coming our way. That's what God is telling you with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, here's just a small taste of what eternity will be like with me. When he gives you the peace of the Spirit, when he gives you the comfort of the Spirit, when he empowers you with the Spirit, when the Spirit does something to you, when you hear the word of God, when you sing the word of God, when you see the word of God lived out, it's like this is just a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like, where we will have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And it's all to the praise of his glory. It's repeated there. It was said in verse 12, and it's said here again in verse 14. The most important thing that you and I see in these four verses is that they are saturated with God's ultimate purpose to glorify himself. Everything he does, he does to deepen the level with which his people praise him for his glory. 
If you have a hard time with the idea of God being about his own glory, it is probably because you project your experiences with people, primarily men, onto God. I love Jesus. I think I'm leading well. I think my eyes are on him. But if you try to use me as the lens through which you view God, your understanding of who God is will come very short. And if you take out the, if you go into the broader view of church, church history, even evangelical leadership today, and you look at these men of God, these leaders of God, and you see how many, how often they fall and how they become so centered around their own glory and that's why they fall and you view God through that lens, then you will have a great misunderstanding of who God is because God deserves glory for two reasons. One, he's the only one that actually it's fitting of. And number two is in God's exaltation and his glory, it is for our good. And so it is good that God would get all glory. We must understand that. St. Augustine says this in his confessions, the God who is inside us closer than we to ourselves is also outside quite beyond our comprehension. We cannot reach God without God having come toward us. See, God has come to us. He's taken the initiative and, and then he dwells inside of us. And so he deserves all the glory. And this is our eternity in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to give some application because I think there's a tendency like, and I, I would just say this to me moves me and it causes me want to respond. And, and so I'm just going to give you three ways that you might respond. This is temporal life in light of our eternal inheritance. And I'll give these quickly. Temporal life in light of our eternal inheritance. I would challenge you, number one, resolve to glorify God in all that we do. Resolve to glorify God in all that we do. That's what worship is. It's remembering who deserves the glory. And so who should we serve? Not our own interest, but God. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you are employed by someone, you might have a way you want to do things, but ultimately you're in subjection to the one who is paying you. The payment that we are receiving is coming from the riches of God's grace, and so ultimately we wanna live every area of our life in a way that exalts him who rewards us with himself. And I would just suggest to you that this is in every area of our life. In everything that we do, we ask, how can I exalt Christ in my job, in my family, wherever I go? I am 100% convinced that God is just as glorified in me doing the dishes as he is in me preaching his word. We tend to reserve the things that glorify God for the things that are prominent, but in no way does that mean any act is more significant than the other and so every aspect of our life is an opportunity to exalt Christ. And it is not a duty for us, for us it, is a, it is a delight. John Piper famously says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
That's what God is aiming to do, is to transform us to where we want to exalt Christ. We want with our money to exalt Christ. We want with our relationships to exalt Christ. We want even in our trials to trust and exalt Christ. Resolve to glorify God in all that you do. Number two, rest in God's determined purpose. And when I think about that word rest, I think about it in, a, in an inactive way and an active way. Inactively, things are happening around you and to you constantly. If you notice what verse 25 says in Colossians 3, 3, it says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This echoes the psalmist, which cries out and says, God, people are doing things that are not of you all around me, and they're getting away with it. And we must rest that God is just, that not a single person will be able to escape the judgment of God. And trust in that. And then actively, God is asking us to do things. And we don't necessarily understand how he asking us to do that, whether it's give up some of our income or keep our mouth shut or, or whatever it might be, how us doing that would be really what's best. But we trust in him. I remember that one of my friends, whenever they had just graduated college, they got married and you know, they were struggling to kind of make ends meet, both of them. I think his wife was still working, so it was just him. I mean, still going to college, so it was just him. And their parents, you know, had some means and had a guest house, and he asked if they could live there as they got their feet set. And his hope was that, you know, maybe in a year, he'd save up that money and he could make a little down payment or something in his house. And so he, he, he his parents said yes. And then when they moved in, they said, all right, the rent's due on the first day of the month. Wait, What? So his parents charged him rent. And he was thinking, man, you know, which they have every right to do to though, but he was thinking, you guys have plenty of money. Thought you're trying to help me out. That's not really what I would say is helping me out. But he paid the rent and ended up taking him two years to be able to get out of there because he thought, you know, he'd be able to save up more money. But he saved up money to where he thought he could make a decent down payment on his house. And whenever they went to move out, his parents gave him all the money that he had paid to them. The point was his parents were helping him with something better than he could have done on his own and better he could have planned to. And I'm just telling you, when God asks us to do something, trust him, trust him. And if we doubt that he is for us, we remember if God did not spare his own son, how we cannot graciously with him give us all things. Rest in God's determined purpose. And number three, remind others of God's purpose. Remind each other. I know this is what's going on in your life right now, but here's your inheritance. You belong to Christ Jesus and the riches of his grace are yours for all of eternity. Paul says in Colossians 3, Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is why we encourage each other. This is why we gather together. This is why we sing together. It's to remind us of our inheritance and who we are in Christ. I love the writings of C.S. Lewis. 
I particularly like his fiction, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, after Edmund has betrayed Aslan, his family, his community, and he comes back and he meets with Aslan and talks to him, and they don't really know what he's talking about. The other children don't know what he's talking about with him. The witch then comes back and makes an appearance, and here's what Lewis writes in this story. He says, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. And he, went, he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. That's why we're here, church. To get each other to look at God, at Christ, at what he has done for us. That it doesn't really seem to matter. The lies that we hear out there or even the lies that we hear in here when we've seen the glory of God and his great love towards us. This is the reason we share the gospel is because there are those who still believe those lies and they don't know the purpose of God roaring like a lion for them in all creation, revolving human history around them being invited into the story of God's grace. So we proclaim it. And we proclaim it to one another. And even as we sing now, that's what we're doing. Christ is my reward and all of my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back. I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Pray with me. I'll just invite us into a few moments of response here. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves the question, have we believed in Christ God has come down into our brokenness to rescue us, to ransom us, redeeming us through his blood, forgiving us of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And maybe right now you would just say, I believe Jesus. Forgive me. I'll follow you. Perhaps you need to ask yourself the question, why has my love grown cold? Why do I not see the Spirit of God at work in me? And you just need to lay down everything that entangles you. And you need to pursue Christ and his purpose for your life with the full heart. Perhaps like this, me this morning, you're asking the question, God, how can I be more committed to reminding others of their purpose? Proclaiming the good news to those who are without purpose and reminding my brothers and sisters in Christ that it does not matter what the witch says when we have encountered the glory of our God who is for us. So God, help us to be people who continually, intentionally 
remind each other to look to the cross and to the empty tomb and to the heavens for Christ who is coming back to bring us to a glorious inheritance of the riches of God's grace, which he's lavishing on us. In Jesus' name.